Real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today is May 20th, 2020, and I'm really excited because uh, today I have a special guest with me. I was really hoping I could keep him forever um, because those of you that listen to Tori Says know what a big fan I am of acting, former acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker, and um, how excited I was in November, uh, you know, when he took the reins. And so he's with us now because he actually wrote a book. And I can tell you, I sped read through the whole thing. It's available now on Amazon. Uh, the tweet should be coming out. It is the most, um, I would say, you know, when you're talking about the swamp, right? Uh, you can't find how to make it concise. Like us journalists that sit down and write articles, it's all about making it concise because it's just a rabbit hole and you get sidetracked because there's so much to say. So this book was done so well. It's called Above the Law and you can find it on Amazon. Uh, it's also available on Audible for those of you that don't want to read the book, but you want to hear the book. And so for my audience that are, uh, you know, over the road drivers, this is excellent uh, because he tells you uh, everything you need to know from how he uh, saw uh, DC. And this is a guy that has been fighting for justice in Iowa. Uh, proudly and uh, reading his kind of uh, introduction to himself and what he did in the book was just, I, I felt like I got to know him a little bit better. Matt, welcome to the Tory Says Show. How are you today? I'm doing well, Tori. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, it is my pleasure. I'm one of your biggest fans. Uh, you know, when when you were appointed acting attorney general, all, all they could do is say that you weren't qualified enough. And all I could remember was, well, you know, James Comey was a U.S. attorney for just a year and a half in New York, and they made him acting attorney general back then with Ashcroft. I mean, double standard much, you know, where he was. Well, right. <laughs> and that's one of the chapters in my book, Tori, as you know, uh, is the double standards, how the left uh, gets all the advantages and then they, you know, they punish the right uh, with an entirely different uh, way and evaluation and standard. And it's, uh, it's not fair. And, you know, they're uh, my qualifications and were, you know, you know, perfect for the job. I had been a U.S. attorney for five and a half years in the Bush administration. I had been chief of staff for attorney general sessions for 13 months. And so I knew the department of justice really from about every angle you could analyze it. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, reading your book, I actually understood just how, you know, you would roll up your sleeves to get things done. And, uh, you would employ, uh, you know, local, um, state and federal authorities to get the job done. I mean, something that was a local case, it became federal, you know, with that drug bust. So I was so impressed reading it. Um, I wanted to ask you though, how did it feel like, you know, you saw that, um, you know, McGann was looking for an attorney, right? So you like applied for the position. Like, how did that work when you did you uh, see it so, in apply? yeah so the, yeah so don mcgann who was the white house counsel in 2017 and uh 2018 was um they wanted somebody inside the white house to run the um you know to to be essentially the point person from the white house to to handle the Mueller investigation and so uh i was approached i i i actually had no desire to come to washington dc and work in the administration, not because I didn't support the president. I just well, didn't think it was my, the path for my life, but you know, God had a different plan. And so, you know, Don, uh, and the white house counsel's office reached out to me to see, because they had, you know, heard about what I was doing and what I was capable of doing. 
and really um, wanted to see if I was interested in that position. And I interviewed um, not only with the White House Counsel's Office, but also the Chief of Staff, uh, Bryce Priebus at the time, and Steve Bannon, uh, among other people. And uh, really was, um, you know, uh, interesting introduction to the White House uh, and the administration. Ultimately, Ty Cobb got the job. And, uh, you know, I, I was glad for that. I think that, you know, obviously there was a different uh, pan, plan for my life and it ended up being chief of staff at the Department of Justice. Well, you you were great as chief um, chief of staff or um, attorney general sessions. I mean, I, forgive me if I say it, but, uh, you know, if anything, Ty, Ty Cobb was like the biggest mistake. I mean, he represented Bill Clinton, who, uh, you know, was supposedly allegedly just had sexual relations. But as a federal prosecutor, you know, no woman that's a mistress holds on to evidence, you know, so the the whole. <laughs> so if he went to the route of supporting him and I get it because they were you know, expecting impeachment, they brought him on. But, you know, it was General Kelly that from what I, you know, my sources had told me that it was General Kelly pushing it. And uh, the fact that, um, you know, uh, he was friends with Mueller. Uh, and I think that kind of sold them more on Ty Cobb. You would have been great for that uh, because you you were impartial and that showed. So uh, so obviously it didn't work out for you. And like you said, there was a better plan. I mean, you were chief of staff to Jeff Sessions. And if I remember correctly, in a previous interview, you had said that uh, since Jeff Sessions had recused himself and so did you. No. Well, so I didn't have to recuse myself. Essentially, uh, the entire uh, office of the Attorney General, what's known as the fifth floor at the Department of Justice, because of Sessions' recusal, there was essentially no need for us to have any knowledge or involvement in the Mueller investigation because you know we 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 uh, we were his staff, if you will, and so it was um, you know it, it, there was just and it was it was it was you know from my perspective it was good because at that moment in time because I could then focus on the other important work that we did at the Department of Justice that's so often ignored and forgotten because the Mueller investigation dominated almost, you know, every daily news cycle and really a lot of, you know, what the focus on the Department of Justice and the FBI was at the time. Right. And, you know, you get into uh, in your book uh, and I kind of read that and I felt that because I've I've been in that place where you're kind of like, uh, I'm not part of the in crowd kind of thing. Uh, how you went to D.C. I mean, how did you feel, you know, going in there? First of all, everybody hated you just because this was the Trump administration. So that's you. You obviously saw that animosity. And I read that through your words, even though they were very carefully chosen on how uh, you felt uh, that animosity going in there as someone that's not, you know, part of the coastal elite groups. I mean, I, I think the, our, you know, my listeners should understand just how um, hostile the environment in D.C. is, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, partisan activities, because they see everything as partisan and justice is supposed to be blind, not partisan. Right. And, you know, this is one of the things, Tori, that I talk about in one of my chapters is the idea of this coastal elitism uh, where sort of these folks that are trained at the, you know, East Coast and West Coast uh, schools then get these positions uh, inside and surrounding the government, uh, you know, and they, they transit in and out of the federal government. And they think anybody who has a different um, background or different experience is somehow unqualified to, uh, to hold these positions. And I remember when I got appointed acting attorney general, I mean, it was, you know, I was, I was not only criticized, but I was attacked from 
really all sides, uh, both, you know, both from the, the, the right wing folks that were coastal elites and the, you know, the left obviously hated me from the moment I showed up in Washington, DC, because, you know, they knew I could be effective. They knew that I was not going to worry about my reputation, that I was going to do the right thing for the right reason. And that's, you know, I look back and, you know, in this book and, and telling the story, you know, I, I'm, I'm very satisfied with doing exactly that, that, that I did the right thing for the right reason. And, and I uphold the rule of, upheld the rule of law. And, you know, fundamentally, I think I left the Department of Justice when Bill Barr took over in a better place than I found it when Jeff Sessions had resigned. Yeah, no. And, and I felt that throughout your book. I mean, and, you know, pointing out things that we, I think people forget very easily, Matt, you know, um, you know, what happened and everything. Because in, in 2016, for example, right, in a September of 2016, and this goes back to this animosity, this, um, resistance. You even said, Viva la resistance, that Kevin Kleinsmith in your book yeah. texted. That was awesome. Cause I was like, is anybody else ever going to repeat that? Because that was really important. But we, we see that, you know, these people that um, have a push forward, like he was the one that altered the CIA document, right? But then we have judges right. too. I mean, Judge Collier, she had spanked Clapper, Brennan, Lynch uh, in September that forced Carlin obviously to resign, right? For the uh, overcollection, the 702 violations where they were like, oh, we're just having like computer problems and it just happens that we're, you know, collecting information on the same people all the time. And then three weeks later, she signs the FISA warrant against Carter Page when she knew those 702s. Do you see what I'm saying? So it was really. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this, you know, this is something that uh, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is I had not seen, you know, certainly somebody that was on the inside of the administration saw this, but I had not really seen in any of the books that were available, somebody stringing all of these, um, these factual, this factual narrative together to show that there was never evidence of collusion. And ultimately, you know, what I believe and what I, sh I believe that I share with Devin Nunes, who wrote the forward of this book, is that, you know, this really was an, uh, an attempt, uh, you know, a, a desire from the folks that didn't like President Trump to undo the election and to catch him in an obstruction of justice trap. And when I, you know, when I became acting attorney general, I felt th that there was, everyone was looking, especially in the Mueller investigation, for me to make one wrong step so that they could, you know, make their case because it took too long and cost too much money to turn up essentially nothing uh, over two years of effort. And they turned up no evidence. And guess what? They didn't have evidence in, at the end of the Obama administration. They didn't have evidence uh, at any point in time that there was any conspiracy between the Russian government and the Trump campaign or anybody on it, including the president. And yet it was a national nightmare for over two years. Wait a minute. Okay. Now that you talked about, you know, evidence and spending money. Okay. So I do a lot of my homework and I pay attention to little things, you know, and I look at the, 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 the bigger picture. So I want to ask you something. You were chief of staff for, um, Jeff Sessions. So there's obviously contracts that are signed, like, you know, how you hire vendors for like, you know, support work, waste management and stuff like that. Right. So is that actually done within in-house at the department of justice or is that outsourced? Like, you know, to whoever does the, the RFP. So there's stuff? a, there's, there's something that's known as the JMD or the justice management division that handles most of the vendor relationships. And it's run by a, um, an assistant attorney general named Lee Loftus, who was appointed in the Bush administration. It's a, actually a career spot. 
Um, it's, I think it's the only career spot that's an AAG, but you know, uh, I, I, you know, that's so JMD okay. handles most of the, all, so, all, so, all of the vendor relationships. So he's like still there. Yes. Well, you know, what's really, really weird is that I wanted to know why during the Mueller probe, we spent over $40 million in waste management to a Canadian company that works with Canadian intelligence. Yeah. Sounds like paper shredding. On that, so that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean that's it. All, there's, there's, you know, this is the thing when you come to Washington, DC, first of all, you're amazed. And, you know, I, I, again, I, this is something I talk about in my book above the law is you're amazed with the massive nature of this. If you think about the justice department has 110,000 employees and includes Bureau of Prisons, among other uh, entities, including the FBI, DEA, ATF, and and uh, U.S. Marshals, and so it's you know it's a massive undertaking. Uh, you know you have to to some extent delegate and trust in that delegation. The people are doing their jobs, and like I said, doing the right thing for the right reason. And ultimately, I think there's you know we we need watchdogs. And something I did before I came to Washington D.C. was run a watchdog group that asks these types of questions and to make sure that, that like, you know, kind of, there's not, um, you know, waste, fraud and abuse. I think that's always, uh, you know, something that, uh, uh, politically appointed and, and career officials should share in common. I, I completely agree because I, I, you know, it sounds like paper shredding to me. I mean, how many janitors do, does the department of justice need and why is it 40 million worth just during the period of time? It was over 40 million during Mueller. And why are we contracting department of justice stuff out to companies that work with Canadian intelligence? I mean, you could say five eyes, but you've seen how much trouble we've gotten into with all of that. And, you know, that's all coming into, 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 you know, our, our purview slowly. So I, I wanted to ask you like so you're you were acting attorney general uh in november of 2018 you got in there and everybody was attacking you from from all ends and it must have been intimidating too because you know you didn't know what to really expect right i mean how do you you know figure out what what's gonna happen who's gonna happen how it's gonna happen right uh it's something new and uh, the more you look the more you see how washington dc and i say this all the time is like an onion by the time you get to where you need to be you've gone through 150 different offices, agencies, vendors, contractors to get where you need to be. So while you were there, how did it feel like, okay, so now you're acting attorney general. Whoa. Like, were you unrecused at that time or were you still recused? So, yep. As soon as, as soon as I became acting attorney general, um, I essentially took control um, of the entire department of justice and, and, and unified the command structure, if you will including the, um, the special counsel's investigation. You know, the first thing, though, that I did was communicate with all the leaders in the department, all the assistant attorney generals, all the U.S. attorneys, all the heads of the various uh, entities, and to make sure that they understood that the command was unified and that we were going to follow regular order. And this is something that Bill Barr has been able to continue, and that is, you know, as part of restoring the integrity uh, of the Department of Justice is to make sure that we follow regular order. And I think all you have to do is look at the Flynn investigation uh, and the reports that are out and to see how regular order was not followed, how rules uh, were violated, how the law may have even been violated, and, and, and see how when the Department of Justice doesn't follow regular order, um, you know, 
it happens, you know, Comey sends over two agents inconsistent with past practice and, and past procedure. Uh, and you end up with, you know, what ultimately, I think, according to the Department of Justice's filing in the Flynn dismissal, was, was an illegal prosecution of General Flynn. And, you know, you look at the cover of my book, Above the Law, and you see Comey and McCabe and Strzok are right there on the cover. And, you know, the bad actors, it wasn't everyone at the Department of Justice. In fact, there's so many good people at the Department of Justice uh, that are just quietly doing their job. But there were, there were a few bad actors, all of which we fired, that really caused uh, much of the havoc that we experienced for years at the uh, Department of Justice. But, you know, I think Bill Barr is bringing back some accountability, and I hope that through his efforts that we can finally hang a lantern on, on this bad behavior and, uh, and, you know, hold anybody accountable that needs to be held accountable. Well, you know, sources say that there's still holdovers, but, you know, I do believe that nobody gets into working for the Justice Department or the FBI or the intelligence community thinking, oh, I can't wait to, you know, pull one over, you know, the eyes of my, you know, American citizens. They take the oath and they're supposed to hold it. But here's here's the thing. Uh, One thing that everybody knows, and I heard Bill Barr once say that, is that you can indict a ham sandwich, right? So you walk in there and right before, you know, Helsinki, so oddly timed, suddenly Mueller indicts 13 Russians, right? And says, yep, they did it. Now with Concord LLC, the Justice Department already withdrew the case on that. So we still have these 13 Russians, which it's like, I'm not a lawyer, right? I'm not a judge. I'm not a grand jury myself. But if I was on that grand jury (laughs) and I'd be asking questions, well, how do you know they hacked it if you didn't have the server? So I wanted to just play this short clip of a former federal prosecutor that claims um, what happens to Mueller if this is true, if that he filed an indictment against people that isn't true. And I want you to tell me how real this is, like what this prosecutor is saying. Just take a listen to this. Hack okay. the DNC servers. We know how that. Do you that know was that? the burglary. How do you that know that? Burglary. How do you know that? Uh, they've been, Bob Mueller's indicted 13 of those soldiers How do spies. you know that the DNC server was hacked by Russia. I know what you have to do to get a federal indictment that says that, and I trust that document. So if that, that's where I'm coming from. Bob Mueller has indicted 13 Russian spies and soldiers who hacked the DNC. That was the burglary, like Watergate. That was the burglary. The burglars didn't get caught at the time. They escaped with the goods. Somehow those goods got to WikiLeaks. And that's so the mystery. how do you know that Bob Mueller knows that it was those 13 Russians? Because he charged them in open court in a federal indictment. You don't, I can charge you, you with a crime. Well, no, you, you can't. You're not a federal prosecutor. Well, <laughs> Bob Mueller, but see, that's my point, Chris. Bob Mueller is a federal prosecutor, and there's a process like that. And, and if, he, if he has done that and he doesn't have the proof, I mean, he'll go to jail. You, you, this is, it's... All one of my favorite theories. I don't think Bob Mueller. He might be a great prosecutor, but he's not a internet or a D or a server forensic person. Okay, so Ooh, he's got experts. Fair, sure. But my point is, the experts that they used was CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike yeah. not the FBI. Yeah, okay, well, so why wouldn't they give the server over to the FBI? Is my point. So, and the the reason why, which yeah, you probably can look this yeah. up yourself, is because of Perkins Coy. Do you know who Perkins Coy uh, is uh, and who runs it? Of course, it? absolutely. Okay, so Bob, who runs Perkins so Coy? Bob Bauer is a part right. of Perkins Coy. And yeah. Who is Bob Bauer? Who is Bob Bauer? He was the the campaign's lawyer. The, the... Okay, so I'm going to stop it there, Matt. So what he said was that if Bob Mueller actually filed an indictment and it's wrong, he could go to jail because it's a felony. Like, is that true? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, there is accountability for prosecutors. Um, but, you know, remember, 
an indictment, you know, you, a grand jury issues an indictment and, and you have to essentially have probable cause that the crime was committed and is committed by this individual. And, you know, it's, it's um, you know, it, it, once it gets to court, then you have to prove that case beyond a reasonable doubt. And, the, you know, the, the federal rules of prosecution, uh, you know, and, and the justice manual, uh, you know, kind of lays out how, you know, how people are charged with crimes and, and the evidentiary standard. And those 13 individuals at the Russian troll farm, uh, you know, that was a case that was brought while I was still recused with General Sessions um, and didn't have a lot of visibility. And I, 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 those, those 13 Russians will never be brought to justice. And the company that was dismissed, uh, you know, really was, was ready to uh, fight the charges. And I think the Department of Justice just wasn't uh, willing to show the evidence they had or didn't have. And, you know, I think, I think that is, uh, I've always been a little suspicious. And I, and again, if, you know, since you've read the book, you know, um, you know, kind of the themes of the book. And one of the mm -hmm. themes of the book is, you know, I, I've always had a skepticism of the Mueller investigation uh, and its motives and, you know, how it even came about and how it was predicated. And, you know, I, I wonder now looking back and, and knowing what we know now, as to whether or not you know those those charges were somehow used to justify um, you know the continuance of the Mueller investigation, which you know as I mentioned before and mentioned in my book, you know appears to be a more of an obstruction of justice trap for President Trump and others than it was ever a, a true investigation as to any criminal conspiracy or collusion between the campaign and um, and. And the Russian government, you know, Devin Nunes wrote the the uh, introduction to the book, and you know he shares a similar uh, thought in the New York Post this week with what the aims of the Mueller investigation ultimately were. Right, and 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 I've read that and reread that because I like to read in between the lines. Um, so now, you know, we only have like about five minutes. So I wanted to ask you. So you said that you were unrecused, right? Per se, when you were acting attorney general. But you know what? I wanted to know. You know this Ukraine stuff that suddenly came up. Now I had some sources tell me that at the Munich conference, Yovanovitch was talking about it, and that's already been published, right? Uh, she was talking about it at the Munich conference. You know, in February of 2019 that she knew about all this stuff and people asking questions in November and December of 2018. So everybody keeps throwing, you know, a big cloak of secrecy over, you know, the Ukraine thing. And I, and I was looking into it. I had the court cases, you know, from where they had them in Latvia and I was following the Poroshenko, you know, and I was using the Ukrainian sites to see what they were publishing, like, you know, on their Facebook sites that they had investigating this. So I'm like, you're attorney general at, during the time where all of this Ukrainian stuff is building up, we're finding out the the, the extent of the State Department's um, activity in you know shenanigans and money and quid pro quos. How, did any of that come to your purview, or was it like you know delegated? Because th that would have been exciting. I'm just saying, if I was you, I would have been all over it. I'd be like, whoa. Yeah, I think there was always you know obviously I was I read the news on a daily basis and was paying attention to what was going on. Uh, I would have to tell you, uh, you know, the work um, we were doing at the Department of Justice that, that was, you know, not front and center. I, you know, I had obviously, as the acting attorney general, I had access to intelligence and, and, and a lot of the information and, and of what was happening around the world. 
Um, you know, but you got to remember during the time that I was acting attorney general, we also had 35 day shutdown uh, where Nancy Pelosi essentially was throwing one of her early fits um, in the new Congress uh, with, you know, sort of frustrating the president's agenda, um, which was, you know, in spite of the Mueller investigation, very effective. It's one of the things, you know, in this book, Tori, that I talk about, and I know since you've read it, you understand, like, I, one of the reasons I wrote this book was in order to tell the story of the men and women of the Department of Justice who work every day quietly to accomplish the agenda of the administration and all the successes and triumphs that we had that were overshadowed by the existence of the Mueller investigation. But, you know, I was, it was a shame, uh, you know, what happened to the president, not only in the Mueller investigation, but then almost immediately after uh, Bob Mueller testified in Congress, what happened with the uh, attempted impeachment and his exoneration on based on a call that we had, you know, the complete transcript on it. So we need to make sure that this never happens again. And I think that's kind of the conclusion of my book is, is twofold. One is we got to have good people willing to serve in spite of how the politics of personal destruction, uh, you know, is played out in Washington, DC. And we need to make sure this never happens again, not only to a president or a candidate for president Tory, but, you know, we got to make sure this doesn't happen again to a, a U.S. citizen like General Flynn. Yeah, well, not just General Flynn. There's so many unnamed people around the nation. Carter going, Page, yeah, 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 yeah. And then that other hidden FISA that nobody's talking about, but we won't talk about that because we're not supposed to. Um, it's <laughs> yes, it's hidden for a reason. But, um, you know, when in your book, when I read the part about the shutdown, I wanted to say Christopher Ray pretty much came up to you while you were acting AG and he was like, yo, can you go to the president and tell him to like end this? And it's like really weird. Like for me, I would be, I know he came to you and his official capacity to ask that on behalf of the FBI. But, you know, that that to me was a little bit weird. It's like, why can't you send him a message? I mean, what was the thought? I mean, how did you interpret that? You know, you're new, you're in there, there's a shutdown, and then you get Christopher Ray, who's really quiet about things and not super transparent about things, comes to you and it's like he's passing you a note in class, like, hey, I want to tell Trump this. How did how did you, you know, feel when he did that? Yeah, well, first of all, I, you know, it was, he was, he was incredibly impassioned about it. And it, we were, I think at the time, probably almost a, a month into the shutdown, we were asking people, including, you know, my own FBI security detail to do their job, to risk their lives without being paid. Now, everybody knew ultimately that we would be paid. I don't think there's any, you know, belief that the shutdown would last forever. It just was politically untenable. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi was playing typical Washington, D.C. tricks. And, you know, having been in the room in those negotiations, I can tell you Schumer and Pelosi are two of the worst, uh, you know, least honest and least believable characters in this whole story. But, you know, that being said, I think, you know, I was, I obviously, Chris was very passionate about his FBI agents, as you would expect. But I had also already uh, mentioned to the President of the United States, uh, understanding, you know, that he was balancing a lot of other things that, you know, he needed, you know, among his considerations for continuing the shutdown and making sure that, you know, the American people uh, were best served is that, you know, law enforcement was uh, suffering from this. And it wasn't just the Department of Justice law enforcement. It was the DHS law enforcement. It was the Treasury law enforcement. And so, you know, there was a lot of there were a lot of members of law enforcement that were risking their lives, you know, and, and we weren't and we weren't paying them. And so, you know, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I think there's a lot, been a lot of criticism of Chris Ray and his style is to be very quiet, as you mentioned, 
And, and as I talk about in the book, you know, ultimately it's going to be up to General Barr and the President of the United States to determine whether or not that's who they want as the as the FBI director. But, you know, I mean, he is uh, he's certainly I think the American people would like a lot more um, explanation as to what changes he's made to make sure that this doesn't happen again and, and make sure that that the FISA abuse is behind us to make sure that, you know, the whether there's illegal wiretapping, whether there is uh, unpredicated investigations to make sure all of those problems have been corrected. Okay. Yeah. And and I agree. And you know, your book, I'm going to be honest, I want a follow up. I want a second one. That's like a year later, you know, how things have done. But to end, you know, our interview, because I know you're like super busy because the book just came out. I wanted to ask you on something that no one really asks. So do you, we all know that the currency between politicians and people in DC in general is blackmail. So are there any like procedures that are in place to prevent blackmail of any government official, intelligence officer, a member of Congress, like pure blackmail? We're not talking debt and stuff like that, that we look at, you know, when people are going through clearance questions, we're talking blackmail. Are there like any procedures in place for that? Um, you know, I, I think I, you know, I used to have a funny joke that when I got to DC, I could often say that's above my pay grade. But when I got appointed acting attorney general, there was only one person above my pay grade. But, you know, in my experience, and maybe it's just because I have lived my life and, you know, kind of with honesty and integrity and, and a deep faith, um, you know, as a Bible believing Christian, I, I, I think that, um, you know, obviously we have uh, laws against um, those types of things. And, you know, if, if somebody tried to black, actually blackmail somebody, with private information that that somehow, you know, the authorities would, uh, would, would get that. Yeah. But it's uh, not like, they, yeah, but it's not like, you know, we're not talking blackmail, like, Oh, you know, you cheated on your wife, you know, TMZ stuff. We're talking like heavy stuff. So it's like, you know, how would we know if someone was being blackmailed? Cause they're not going to say it. And how do we know if they're being blackmailed by an enemy that's foreign or domestic? Like, you know, uh, do you know of anyone? maybe that has been compromised like that or no you know. I, I actually uh, and, i don't i'm sorry for yeah, it. I wish I, no that's I wish totally I could give fine you dish to you but i, I no don't, no no um, i'm not asking for dish but what i'm saying is yeah. you wouldn't know because we don't have those procedures in place and with the technology we have these days on how we evaluate employees wouldn't it be ideal uh to to use that technology to ensure that we know if there's any blackmail in place because that is a bigger motivator than debt than debt and stuff like that and I think, um, you know, that's something that, that, that we should be focusing on because that's like top dollar currency in D.C. I know what you did, you know. And I mean, you were in the Justice Department. It's not like it came at you. I mean, if they surely knew something about you, it would have been out there already, like from your time at football. Right. But um uh, I want to thank you for your time, and I yeah, totally sorry, love a follow-up book. Um, like in retrospect, like once after these elections, I think you would be great to put it out there because your book was easy to read, enjoyable, and something someone can go back and reread and say, "Wait a minute, what happened there? Let me look at that again." Um, because it said yeah. a lot, and it let America know who you are. And uh, you know, I was kind of devastated that you weren't the Attorney General. Um, to be well, honest, thank you. It just wasn't my time, as I mentioned before. Some of this uh, just happens for a reason, and and I uh, I trust that you know there's a plan, and uh, you know I'll walk through the open doors and and see what the plan is, and you know I really I'm very thankful that we had a chance to chat, and uh, Me I hope too. all your listeners go out and get and the, buy book. the book, and, I, and I'm also I'm also thankful for you reading it, and uh, 
you, you said you'll read it again, so I'm sure there'll be more insights that Definitely. you're able to talk about the next time we chat. Definitely. I can't wait to have you back on. Um, Matt, thank you so much. Uh, God bless. And yes, we always have to trust that the plan is in place. Uh, thank you so much for joining us at the Tory Says Show. Um, God bless. Have a great day. All right. Thanks, thank Tori. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So everyone, that was Matt Whitaker, the former acting attorney general of the United States. Um, you guys obviously know what a huge fan I am of his. And um, obviously I wanted him for the full hour, but I got 30 minutes, right? 30 good minutes uh, where we went through things. So um, we're up uh, for a overdue break and I will see you in just a bit. Okay. Forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. Every decision will be made to benefit American workers and American families. America will start winning again, winning like never before. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. Do not allow anyone to tell you that it cannot be done. No challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit of America. We will not fail. Our country will thrive and prosper again. Your voice, your hopes, and your dreams will define our American destiny. When America is united, America is totally unstoppable. After nearly four years, my family's nightmare is finally over. We couldn't have survived this without the love and support of the millions of patriots around the world. Thank you from the bottom of our heart. Hi, I'm Laura Loomer, and I'm running for Congress in Florida's 21st Congressional District. Wouldn't it be horrible if we lived in a nation where journalists were silenced just because they confronted the political and media elite? You might think that could never happen in America, but it did. And to me. For confronting people like Hillary Clinton on her corruption and Ilhan Omar for her ties to radical Islamic terror groups, I have been banned on pretty much every single social media platform. And if that doesn't sound extreme enough, I'm also banned on Uber and Lyft. I know, I cannot understand that last one either. When this all happened to me, I contacted the media and members of Congress. I asked them for help. I kept calling, I kept emailing, but I never received a reply. And that's when it hit me. I'm a well-known journalist who has the phone numbers of the most powerful people in politics and media, yet I couldn't get any assistance. What on earth would the average American do if the same thing happened to them? I realized then that if I wanted to see change, that I would need to run for office. The American people deserve representation that listens to and acts on their concerns. 
So here I am, running for Congress in Florida's 21st Congressional District, because the American people deserve a voice and a representative who, like President Trump, will keep the promises they make and speak up loudly and clearly for that silent majority. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. So that was the most fun I've had, um, obviously, because I was a huge fan of Whitaker's. Um, and, you know, he's uh, super collected. I, I do urge you to get his book, seriously. And it's on Audible if you don't want to buy uh, the book and read it. Because, you know, reading is such a s- slow mode sometimes for people. I actually enjoy it. I sped through it and was looking at things. And I just wanted to get an idea of who he is, not what the TV tells me, not what I imagine or concoct in my mind, but actually read it. And it gave me the sense of, you know, he was this guy who's just like, you know, mid-America coming down there and, you know, he was pushed aside. I mean, I think he would have been great for White House counsel, but I, honestly, and, you know, I was pulling my hair when they had Ty Cobb going. I was like, what? You got the rapist's, uh, you know, attorney there who's friends with Mueller? Are you asking for the president to be removed? Like, seriously. But anyway, um, Maybe they were trying to bank on the fact that, you know, he knows Mueller and he's been through impeachment that, you know, he knows what's up. But it was Ty Cobb. Let's be honest. And I'm pretty sure there's some transcript somewhere over there. Kind of like I said, there's hidden visas that we don't know about. Um, You know, but I do. Um, That um, because, you know, fly on wall. Schiff has very loose lips. But anyway, (laughs) I digress. Uh, the, the bottom line is McGahn being subpoenaed was based on stuff that Cobb um, stated to the left, just so you know. Now, uh, I wanted us to talk about um, the inspector general being fired. Now, we've talked about Linick and Mark Straw and the State Department and how my poor Mike Pompeo is treading with galoshes in the swamp of the State Department. And you know that I've pointed out exactly who the unmaskers were before anybody knew. And I'm going to tell you one little tidbit. The hidden FISA warrant, right, that nobody's talking about, we can credit the U.S. ambassador to Russia, Teft. And again, if you look at my article, I put hints as to where we need to look. Um, Obviously, Brennan at the center of everything, but who exactly within the State Department uh, helped um, help create the intercept. Well, okay. Let me rephrase that. Help create the illusion of intercept. It's like me working at the State Department and telling my friend Joe, <laughs> the CIA, hey, yo, so-and-so is going to send me an email that's going to say this, and you're going to intercept it. And then it's like I'm waiting for this email, and it's like, oh, no, Joe intercepted my email. Gosh darn it. <laughs> when I gave Joe a heads up. You get what I'm saying? This is how they make it record. That We just happened to canvas randomly because of XYZ reason, or maybe we were looking into a property purchase with USAID my and so we intercepted her computer, you know, to see that, or we asked for some records on this. And so as they have an open request for these records,
records and they've hired this chick. Well, hired in air quotes, right? So they're like, hey, we want to see like the transactions that happened in Albania. And so the CIA is like, so we need to see it because we need to look like for foreign stuff. We're from counterintelligence. And she's like, oh, okay. So that's an open request. So every week they're like, yo, you got anything? She's like, here you go. Here you go. And it just so happens she gets the email. They need intercepted to put down for this fight. A total setup. Total setup. Now, obviously, I had a lot more questions for um, Matt Whitaker. But you know what I'm really hoping who I'd really love to have on my show? Rick Grinnell. And I'm totally going to ask him where he got his satchel from because it's really, it's really hot. I love that satchel. Um, obviously, it's a male satchel, but I'm okay with that. It just looks so well made. Um, but I'm not going to ask him that. We all know that. Um, so let's just take a listen because we've been talking about the State Department. Well, I've been dropping hints as much as I can because out of the whole place, so at the White House, we still have a few holdovers, okay? We still have a few rats, okay, married to rats. Uh, but we've got, you know, Voice of America. We'll talk about that a little bit. Well, no, we're not going to talk about it today. But let's talk State Department. So let's listen to um, our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who you guys know I adore, um, and what he had to say about the firing of the Inspector General. If it wants to play, and there we go. Warriors fought and died so that we can live and enjoy the, the fruits of this great country. I, uh, I want to begin today with a few observations on China because the media's focus on the current pandemic uh, risks missing the bigger picture of the challenges presented by the Chinese Communist Party. First, basic facts. China has been ruled by a brutal authoritarian regime, a communist regime, since 1949. For several decades, we thought the regime would become more like us through trade, scientific exchanges, diplomatic outreach, letting them in the WTO as a develop, developing nation. It didn't happen. We greatly underestimated the degree to which Beijing is ideologically and politically hostile to free nations. The whole world is waking up to that fact. Pew reported, I think it was this past week, that 66% of Americans have an unfavorable view of China. That is a direct result of the Chinese Communist Party's choices, which are influenced by the nature of the regime. And the nature of that regime is not new. Second point, on the bigger picture. The Chinese Communist Party's response to the COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan have accelerated our more realistic understanding of Communist China. The party chose to destroy live virus samples instead of sharing them or asking us to help secure them. The People's Liberation Army has claimed more features in the South China Sea's international waters, sank a Vietnamese fishing boat, threatened a Malaysian energy prospector, and declared a unilateral fishing ban. The United States condemns these unlawful acts. The Chinese Communist Party chose to threaten Australia with economic retribution for a simple act of asking for an independent inquiry into the origins of the virus. It's not right. We stand with Australia and the more than 120 nations now who have taken up the American call for an inquiry to the origins of the virus so we can understand what went wrong and save lives now and in the future. The Chinese Communist Party also chose to pressure the World Health Organization's Director General into excluding Taiwan from this week's World Health Assembly in Geneva. I understand that Dr. Tedros' unusually close ties to Beijing started long before this current pandemic, and that's deeply troubling. 
President Xi claimed this week, that China's acted with openness, transparency, and responsibility. I, I wish it were so. It's been 142 days since doctors at Wuhan Central Hospital first started sharing information about a SARS-like virus. And yet, today, as we all sit here this morning, Beijing continues to deny investigators access to relevant facilities, to withhold live virus samples, to censor discussion of the pandemic within China, and much, much more. If the Chinese Communist Party wants to demonstrate real openness, real transparency, it could easily hold press conference, like this very press conference, and allow reporters to ask him anything that they would like. Third, China's contributions to fighting the pandemic are paltry compared to the costs that they have imposed on the world. This plague has cost roughly 90,000 American lives. More than 36 million Americans have lost their jobs since March. Globally, 300,000 lives could be as much as $9 trillion, according to our estimates. Cost imposition on the world by the Chinese Communist Party's failures. The United States has responded with about $10 billion to benefit the international response, everything from vaccine research to funding for preparedness efforts and humanitarian aid. That's compared to a promise of $2 billion from the Chinese. I look forward to seeing them fulfill that $2 billion commitment. Private American businesses to nonprofits, charities, citizens have provided an additional $4.3 million from American donations to assist the world. There is no country that remotely rivals what the United States has done to help combat this terrible virus. And today I'm pleased to announce another $162 million in foreign assistance, bringing our total commitments dispersed to more than $1 billion since the outbreak began. That's just what the State Department and USAID have done. In addition to that funding today, the State Department and USAID and the Inter-American Foundation are providing more than $200 million in assistance for the Venezuelans in need as well. This is what we do all around the world. We will help the world recover from this pandemic. Turning for a moment to Taiwan, I want to say congratulations to President Tsai on her inauguration. The democratic process in Taiwan has matured into a model for the world. Despite great pressure from outside, Taiwan has demonstrated the wisdom of giving a people a voice and a choice. In Hong Kong, our decision on whether or not to identify Hong Kong as having a high degree of autonomy from China is still pending. We're closely watching what's going on there. This week, pro-democracy legislators were manhandled while trying to stop a procedural irregularity by pro-Beijing legislators. Leading Hong Kong activists like Martin Lee and Jimmy Lai were hauled into court. Actions like these make it more difficult to assess the Hong Kong remains highly autonomous from mainland China. We're also keeping a close eye on human rights, as we always do, pandemic or no pandemic. I was pleased that France arrested this weekend Felician Kabuga, who is alleged to have played a key role in the Rwandan genocide. We're monitoring Burundi as voters there go to the polls today. Wow, they're going to the polls today. And you're going to be like, Tori, who cares? Oh, that's a really big deal, bringing up Rwanda right now um, in this day and age, I'm just saying, uh, because that tells you a lot of what's going on. And, uh, you know, bringing up Taiwan, you know, it's important for us to say that, you know, uh, the the WHO doesn't want to recognize Taiwan as a nation, and they have been uh, pretty much um, helping out with all of this. So that was, that was uh, that's pretty interesting. So I want to, um, I wanted to you to hear uh, that portion of the interview. Now I want to get to uh, the thoughts of, um, you know, well, what he had to say about the firing of his IG, and um, 
the relationship of China and how he answers on how, you know, things will pan out with it. So I'm just going to play this question that was asked. The audio is a little bit not so good. So I apologize for that. But um, here we go. Let's get it at the right spot. Um, Hold on. I'm trying to find the right part. It's where poor Mike Pompeo coughed. Here we go. We've just marked the sad anniversary of six years since Paul Overby's disappearance in Afghanistan. Our colleagues at the FBI have renewed their $1 million offer for information relating to his return, and my team continues to press towards that goal through diplomatic channels as well. The well-being of American citizens comes first to this president, to this administration. And with that, I'm happy to take a few questions. Hi, good morning. Um, On Taiwan, Mm -hmm. you mentioned that the democratically elected Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen a few hours ago uh, inaugurated to continue her second term. Uh, we saw a video message from National, uh, Deputy National Security Advisor Pottinger uh, in Mandarin Chinese. And we saw a uh, video message from Assistant Secretary Stilwell um, and your statement to congratulate Taiwan. My question for you is, how does the United States envision its relationship with Taiwan and Taiwan's global participation after uh, WHO in the coming years, um, separately, if I may, um, President Trump mentioned last week that uh, the U.S. may cut off all relationship with China. Would you like to weigh in your thoughts? Should the United States ponder an official relationship with Taiwan based on shared values of democracy, religious freedom, and human rights? Thank you. So uh, we congratulated the uh, winner of the election there. We were happy to see that. Um, My congratulations were in English, not Mandarin. It was the best that I could do. Uh, But we uh, understand uh, that the work that we have done there, uh, and it comports with the history of the agreements between the United States and China, is the right solution to maximize the stability there in the Straits. You know, the president talked about... um, how we're going to respond, how he's beginning to think about responding to the calamity that has befallen the world as a result of the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. I I don't want to get ahead of him in terms of talking about how the administration will respond to that, but you can already begin to see the outlines of it. I talked about this with our 5G national security trifecta. You can already see how we're beginning to work to make sure we get America first, that we get this foreign policy right and that we respond to these risks that the Chinese Communist Party presents to the United States in an appropriate way. You saw yesterday, I think it was, or maybe it was the day before, the Department of Defense make announcements about work on rare earth minerals. So that, again, we wouldn't be dependent on a nation that has demonstrated its unreliability, its willingness to steal our intellectual property, all the things that, frankly, for decades, and this isn't remotely partisan, Democrat presidents, Republican presidents, all just to turn the other way because of 1.5 billion people and the opportunity for enormous markets and this hope, this hope that engagement would lead to a change in the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party. It, it didn't happen. And President Trump has been incredibly serious about making sure that we do the right things for the American people. I, I know he'll continue to do it. We continue to work on this to develop an appropriate way 
to think about how we can get the Chinese Communist Party and China to behave in a way that's consistent with how we ask every nation to behave. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, Mr. Secretary, Hello, uh, last night uh, the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas abrogated all agreements with Israel and the United States, including security coordination. Do you have any comment on that? And would you also um, comment on the process or the progress of annexation per the um, the announcement by Mr. Netanyahu that he will do so sure. by July 1? Yeah, sure. So he's been asked about the Yahoo and the annexation. Uh, this audio is so bad, I'm struggling to hear it. So I uh, will be amplifying it. Just in, just in summary, let's just leave it there. Um, just in summary, he did address the firing of the IG. Now, after the break, we're going to talk about how Mueller, um, how, how the Democrats set sessions up for recusal and how they did it as well as, and I have to thank a fellow reporter for that as well as discussing things about the state department, how they operate, because we did hear uh, Mike Pompeo talk a lot about USID, USAID, USAID, as I call it, because if you actually go to the websites of USAID, what you see is just this incredible uh, gray area where we are unable for the past 15 years to balance the checkbook with Treasury. And that's because there's a lot of cash transactions and a lot of properties off the books that are being purchased. Uh, and that's key here. So uh, hopefully uh, we can... Uh, kind of delve into it a little bit, talk about it a little bit, um, to bring some transparency to one of the, I mean, it's not called the foggy bottom for nothing, right? Uh, but, uh, talk about where, you know, our secretary of state is literally waiting in, uh, you know, the trenches of the swamp and how fast we need to drain it. So I'll see you guys right after this break and we'll take it from there. Real news. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. I'm your host, Tory. So I'm really disappointed that my audio is not so good um, with Secretary Pompeo. But we're going to talk more about that later on in the show. Um, what I wanted to do is just um, talk about some developments that have happened in regards to the Flynn case. And uh, listen to Pelosi babble because she had a conference, which is really interesting because she's taking hydroxychloroquine, but she's knocking it. Uh, so that's important for us to drive home. And then we're going to revisit um, something curious in regards to timing on how Al Franken played a key role on getting Jeff Sessions to recuse himself. It was super staged, um, obviously. And, um, and then listen to what Kellyanne Conway had to say about, uh, you know, Rice and her email. So let's start off first with uh, something that is of great interest to many of us, and that's, you know, General Flynn and his case and how 15 states AGs are, are pushing to get the Flynn charges dropped, but then the rest of them are pushing to get them done. Take a listen. 
The law is clear. He doesn't have authority to grant it. He can't appoint a prosecutor himself. The case is over, and his bias is so egregious, he should be removed from the case. And that is what she's pushing. The attorney for Michael Flynn taking on Judge Emmett Sullivan, filing an emergency appeal to get him booted off the case and to force the dismissal of Flynn's charges, which the DOJ requested. Here to react is Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall, who's one of the 15 AGs pushing to get Flynn's charges dropped. Steve, why did you become, why did you want to become part of this? Why did you want your feelings known? You know, Brian, good morning. Thank you for having me uh, with you today. You know, I've been a prosecutor for over 20 years, and to see what uh, this judge is doing against a reputable prosecutor in Tim Shea attempting to do justice by dismissing this case, you know, speaks to the very core of what it is that I do, and along with my colleagues. So, how do you feel about Sidney Powell's move? Uh, Mandamus brief that she's filed to essentially say this judge is biased, uh, and he hired a retired judge that's a Trump hater uh, to oversee a case that should not be in court anyway. In fact, here's what she said about Sullivan. Uh, what Sullivan said about Michael Flynn the last time they were in court together. He said this, I can't hide my disgust, my disdain for your criminal offense. Not only did you lie to the FBI, you lied to senior officials in the un incoming administration. Arguably, you sold out your country, you sold your country out. Now, he would later apologize. But what does that say legally uh, what, what he should be doing with this case? I think it speaks volume to a judge who is now out of control. And I commend General Flynn's counsel being able to file that mandamus with the Court of Appeals. You know, it's an opportunity for that court to, to strike back at the district judge who needs to follow who, through his responsibilities. And that is to dismiss this uh, untenable case at the request of the prosecution who's attempting to do justice here. And in outlining her case, Sidney Powell also pointed out to, when they brought up to the judge, hey, you know when the FBI talked to Michael Flynn? They wrote up a summary weeks later in a 302. We can't find it. The judge goes, well, those things happen. So between the retired judge that hates Trump to oversee the case, between his obviously thinking he sold the country out, and his nondescript ways of saying the 302s are lost, you've got to toss this guy off the case. But legally, will he get tossed? Don't know that he will. You know, the important thing is, though, for the for the judge ultimately to do what the rule requires him to do. And that is on the basis of the motion by the, the, the DOJ in this case is to be able to dismiss the case against General Finn. It's due. It's warranted. And it's what justice requires. Who corralled you real quick, Steve, to do this? Oh, this is led by General Yost in Ohio, and I think uh, several of us who obviously have spent most of our careers attempting to do exactly what Tim Shea is doing in this case, and that's to do justice, uh, feel very strongly this case needs to be dismissed. All right, uh, Steve, thanks for getting up with us. Uh, Steve Marshall, Attorney General of Alabama. So let's talk about this. So we have a lot of GOPAGs, right? Obviously, no surprise that we don't see North Dakota's AG here, who's supposedly a Republican, but was invited to McCain's funeral and has Barack Hussein Obama on speed dial. I mean, you know, limp-wristed does limp-wristed, right? So just for all of you to know, the attorney generals that stood by General Flynn and this miscarriage of justice, this abuse of power, this judge that is rogue and is straying away from everything that is the foundation of the law are from the states of Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Texas, Utah, and West Virginia, and obviously led by Ohio's Attorney General Yost. 
first. That's pretty awesome that they came by and said, listen, we're the head lawyers for these states, and this is egregious. This is horrific. And this is what we have to say. No, because like I told you weeks ago, right? Weeks ago, um, indeed, (laughs) that there are, you know, the the minions of uh, Eric Holder claim that uh, they are working tirelessly. 700 federal prosecutors, the former ones that have gone through the Obama administration that are staunch Democrats have rallied behind the judge to give him empowerment to do what? Break the law? Make up a new law? What? Become judge and jury and prosecutor? Which one is it? This is where we're at. This is just how insane it is. And this is why, you know, during my interview with Matt Whitaker, I wanted to stress just how he was met with such animosity simply for being there and simply for working within the Trump administration. That's really sad. So here we go. Let's hear Pelosi and what they have to ask her about hydroxychloroquine and how she answers, shifting a bit of gears. Another deal. Well, I, I didn't um, say anything about the president. I, I gave him a dose of his own medicine. He's called women uh, one thing or another over time. And I, I thought he thinks that passes off his humor in certain cultures. And I thought that was what that was. And I was only quoting what doctors had said about him. So I was being factual and a very sympathetic way. I said, he's our president. We don't want our president taking something that could be dangerous, as the scientists have said it could be. If he takes offense at that, well, I could take offense at a lot of things, but they don't really mean that much to me. But again, a dose of his own medicine. Yes, sir. What is the status of you and Leader McConnell choosing a chairman yeah. for the uh, Congressional Oversight Commission? Some members say they can't properly do their work without the chairman's resources. That Some members are saying that. That's not the impression I have for them. I get a very confident impression from them that they have done their first report, uh, the four of them working together, and it has it's in the public domain already, as you probably have seen. Uh, but we are exchanging names, and... Uh, I'm optimistic and hopeful that we should be able to find some, someone that, uh, that meets the test, who's not, um, not shall we say, um, on the board of one thing or another as we go forward. Yes, ma'am. I was just going to ask about that, but um, separately, more broadly, on, on the oversight issue, um, you brought up the number of IGs. It sounds like the um, acting uh, IG at transportation was also... Uh, relieved of his job. Um, I just wonder, as the administration continues to stonewall your oversight efforts on the House side, how, uh, what is your appetite for a subpoena fight um, or, or to get into a fight to compel the appearance of some officials like Secretary Pompeo? Well, I think the uh, case is very clear uh, uh, that the president is afraid of the truth. He and his administration are afraid of the truth. We must insist upon the truth. And there's the Congress, there's the courts, and there's the court of public opinion. And I think that from what I'm hearing uh, from people all over the country, it's amazing, the legal experts, the jurists, the academics, the the former law enforcement and the rest, they think that this is so a bridge too far, almost unlike some of what has gone before in terms of undermining our democracy. 
Uh, the uh, We are in court on subpoenas now and awaiting court decisions. Uh, but when the, the court is a court that is appointed by the person that you are seeking a subpoena on, you, you don't know what the outcome may be, prayerfully, that it would be to honor the beautiful genius of our Constitution, a system of checks and balances where we have equal, separate but equal, uh, uh, separation of power, one a branch of government, a check on the other. But one or the other is appointed by the third branch, is appointed by the second branch, uh, then we'll just have to see how that, uh, how that turns out. Wait a minute. What'd she say? Did you guys catch that? Um, does she not know the three branches of government? I thought that was just Ocasio's thing. Take a listen again. Over the country. It's amazing. The legal experts, the jurists, the academics, the, uh, the former law enforcement and the rest, they think that this is so abridged too far, almost unlike some of what has gone before in terms of undermining our democracy. Uh, the, uh, we are in court on subpoenas now and awaiting court decisions. Uh, but when the, the court is a court that is appointed by the person that you are seeking a subpoena on, you, you don't know what the outcome may be. Prayerfully, that it would be to honor the beautiful genius of our Constitution, a system of checks and balances where we have equal, separate but equal, uh, uh, separation of power, one a branch of government, a check on the other. But one or the other is appointed by the third branch is appointed by the second branch. Uh, then we'll just have to see how that uh, how that turns out. So it is. Um, I don't think you know. One thing I do think that what the what is she saying, guys? And uh, let's just um, uh, make it clear that she's wearing the staff again. That she's in charge. And what she's talking about is a subpoena they sent to the courts demanding. Uh, materials from grand jury, um, deliberations and hearings and cases that are under seal. It's like, no, you're not going to find out who's going to jail. We should be able to do in a, a future comment, and this would apply to Democratic or Republican presidents. That doesn't, that's not the point, is that I don't believe that a president should be able to fire a public official who's investigating him or her. You know, if the, if the in, inspector general has is on a path, then how, how on earth, and same thing with an attorney general or others uh, 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 as well, a, a U.S. attorney, if that, if the focus is on the president, where is any justice in the system if that person uh, can fire uh, the person looking into it? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Is she talking about Comey? Or, wait, so they know that Comey is under a sealed criminal indictment. Are you listening? This is where we lost our ability to listen. Comey, say it with me. Comey is under a sealed criminal indictment. He is, he is part of the investigation and that's what they want. Hello, they just told you. She just told you babbling on. Listen. And so that's why it's curious about uh, the IG at Intel, the IG at Defense, the IG at HHS for saying, uh, questioning how we were proceeding and fighting the, the American people. Some of this may be uh, academic to them, but how we are fighting COVID-19 and that uh, IG. Well, what is she talking about? Did you guys... 
guys, this isn't edited. This is full stream, streamed live. So she's talking about Comey. She just realized she told everyone she knows Comey is under criminal investigation and she wants to see what they got on Comey, right? So they could cover their tushes. And it's like, girl, just because y'all hired Canadian intelligence company to do all your paper shredding doesn't mean nobody took photocopies of that stuff because blackmail is gold in D.C. Blackmail is gold in global politics. So now she shifts it like, yeah, the IG of the HHS and like COVID and, and, and it's like, stop. You were just talking about Comey. When did you shift gears again? Uh, relieved of responsibility. Uh, that. That hits home directly, and then, of course, now the uh, perhaps uh, you know the State Department and maybe the Transportation Department. The list, the list goes on. But anyway, uh, we've got to just keep a clear path. What is our oath of office? What are we here to do? I do think that there is bipartisan commitment to our democracy to our oath of office, and to our protecting and meet the American people and meeting their needs. And uh, so that was, that's what gives me confidence about how we go forward. And uh, I don't take offense at anything. The president says things about me all the time. I say one thing about him, and it's like, oh, some uh, uh, equivalence here. Yeah, no one's talking about how she's trying to look like Michael Jackson. It just doesn't, it's so unimportant. So now we're going to trash talking. Okay, so get this. We went from, we subpoenaed the court to give us information about a sealed case. And then it's not about Comey, but it's about the person that was investigating him and got fired by him. Yeah, it's about Comey. And then it's like, oh shoot, did I just tell everyone that Comey is under criminal investigation? So yeah, HHS, and we want to protect people. And, you know, we're doing everything because we want to do it for the people and protect their interests. You mean your interests. And now she's to trash talking between the two. Uh, very coherent. Any other question? Or anybody on the electronic? Yes, ma'am. Okay, we have been everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Um, you just said that um, vote by mail is a health issue. It is. It's also a post office issue. Yes, ma'am. So how is that front going? Yes, yesterday, I, today I'm focusing on SNAP, on hunger. And when I write to my colleagues, it's going to be about the urgency, the urgency of our getting food to people. Yesterday I talked about the post office uh, because that is, real, that is really in jeopardy. As I mentioned, it's a health issue. Over a billion packages of medicine last year, and that was before COVID. 90% of veterans get their medicine through the mail. 20% of the workforce in the post office are veterans. So, but for these and other reasons, it's an of an interest to veterans, their health and their livelihood. So it is um, uh, it's essential if we're going to have vote by mail that we have a thriving post office. I think it's important to note, since you asked, uh, that the, the board of governors that governs the U.S. postal system, 100% of it appointed by President Trump, 100% appointed by unanimously voted for three things as we go forward. One, a $25 billion infusion of appropriated funds largely related to COVID because of uh, the challenges there, uh, a, um, uh, a loans 
loan guarantees with the Treasury Department without strings. See, there was loan in one of the previous bills, but they had all these strings, which were the path to what the administration wants, privatization of the post office. But without going into that, this Bush-appointed bipartisan committee, $25 billion, no strings on the loan, and third, they wanted $25 billion for modernization of the post office because some things are really ancient there in terms of, of um, infrastructure as well as transportation. That third one we're going to save for our infrastructure bill, which will be coming soon. We do have the first two recommendations of the Trump-appointed Board of Governors of the U.S. Postal System. Uh, are in our legislation and are directly related to the health of the American people, uh, the health of our voting system, the census, so many of the things that are happening now, as well as, um, again, to keep people out of uh, voting lines and people out of voting places, but voting more in a more healthy way. How is that healthy again? Why can't we social distance? I mean, you know, maybe all of us will wear a stupid, you know, life-saving donut or something and just walk around with a donut. We can social distance. I mean, we have circles and squares and one-way things sprayed all over floors and in the mall. And they have, take your time, wear your mask. We could do that. Nope, 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 Nancy. I want to go and vote. I want to go and vote, Nancy. So sorry, that's not happening. So Nancy Pelosi said all this rubbish made absolutely no sense. Now we have Kellyanne Conway talking about how they declassified Susan Rice's email detailing the 2017 Oval Office meeting. But we do have to remember how, uh, you know, she had said she knew nothing about it. Remember? She had said, I know nothing about it. So I think it's important that we listen to that clip first, which is somewhere. Hold on. I just had it too, where she said, yeah, I don't know anything about that. Um, I got to see, um, you know, I, I don't know anything about f spying on Flynn. Like, no. And it's like, well, wait a minute. How did you not know again? Because you actually wrote the letter. Uh, how did you not know uh, the United Kingdom actually unmasked him as a foreign entity because of you and what you said. So again, tell me how it was that you did not know. Listen. The transition after uh, uh, President Trump uh, had been elected, that he and the people around him may have been caught up in surveillance of foreign individuals and that their identities may have been disclosed. Do you know anything about this? I know nothing about this. Okay, let's just remember that as we listen to Kellyanne Conway here when this wants to now play live from the white house this morning hey kellyanne good morning thanks so much for being here so coming off of that report from john roberts there at the white house does the president does the white house believe this morning that this newly revealed susan rice email reveals evidence of misconduct it certainly is worth exploring that january 20th inauguration day memo to her email to herself is quite extraordinary sandra because you would think the outgoing national security advisor would be welcoming in the new administration saying hey i'd like to spend a little bit of time today after president trump is sworn in uh, going through 
our, our protocols going through reviewing with you where we think the hot spots are but instead she was doing quite an extraordinary thing throwing under the bus Jim Comey here it seems to me because he was the one person in that January 5th Oval Office meeting who was going to continue into the Trump administration as FBI director I note that it says quote Comey sees no indication thus far thus far suggests that they felt they had a conclusion that still needed evidence so let's just keep digging and investigating susan rice already lacks credibility this is someone who is a very different person under oath under penalty of perjury when she is testifying versus on her numerous television appearances she famously blamed a videotape for the benghazi killings uh, back in 2012 she did the whole round of sunday shows and then she you know what she got for that not scorn as uh, she got a return invitations to those shows to then lie again apparently in April 2017 telling PBS's Judy Woodruff quote I know nothing about this I was surprised to see the reports from Chairman Nunes on the count on that count referring to what transpired three short months earlier so there is so much that we need to know because the president is correct this should never have happened to General Flynn personally this was my phone before call joy This is my phone now. Thanks for calling Leo's Plumbing. In a few words, how can I help you? As a small business owner, my to-do list is never ending. I don't always have time to answer every call. Thankfully, I found CallJoy. A customizable... But it actually hurts the country. Yeah. If you don't have this peaceful transition of a democracy from national security team to national security team. Sure. One last thing. Yeah. They said that Comey was doing it, quote, by the book. No, Comey was doing this to then write a book. There is nothing normal in an FBI director running to his laptop when he leaves uh, the Trump Tower, he leaves uh, dinner with the president here and typing out things and then coming out with a book a couple yeah. short months uh, later. So this all should be investigated. A lot of questions, no doubt. But what you're talking about in terms of a transition is some three years ago now. Here we are in 2020. Susan Rice is being talked about as a potential VP, VP nominee right. uh, for Joe Biden. Your thoughts, not just on that, but big picture here. What kind of accountability then are you calling for? It's one thing to have hearings on Capitol Hill as Lindsey Graham wants to. But John Durham is doing this investigation. A lot of speculation. Chuck Grassley and others have said something may be coming in the next few weeks. What are you expecting? You've seen the long short list of Joe Biden's VP choices. They all happen to be female. He sounds like a, you know, a co-ed at the end of a frat party. I need a woman. Uh, so now he has binders of women he's looking through. And he's got people like Sally Yates and Susan Rice allegedly on this list. And those are two women who were very involved in this, in the shenanigans that were happening in the days before we got here to the, to the Trump White House. Uh, she can't be trusted. And she's proved that. And I think the very easy question she would be asked in a debate against Vice President Mike, uh, Mike Pence, which he clearly would win, uh, is, well, what did you know? When did you know? Why are you writing emails to yourself? Why are you saying one thing on TV? Do you realize she was asked by a network anchor on a, on a show, quote, can you rule out that President Trump is a Russian asset? And she basically shrugged her shoulders. She couldn't rule out that the current president of the United States is a Russian asset. So she lacks credibility. Um, and you know what, Ed? I got to push back on the fact that because this was three plus years ago, it doesn't matter. Excuse me. I didn't me. say it didn't matter. Put, no, clear. no, not you. Not okay. you. They're saying this. They, the the okay. people who would be held accountable are saying this. Oh, move on. We have a global pandemic. Ah, uh, yes. Move on. We have a global pandemic. But let's remember this. During the transition, after uh, uh, President 
Trump uh, had been elected, that he and the people around him may have been caught up in surveillance of foreign individuals and that their identities may have been disclosed. Do you know anything about this? I know nothing about this. She knows nothing about this. Are you sure, Susan? Are you totally sure? And you want to be VP now so you can be guarded from being indicted? Is that it? Because you did this? You went to foreign entities? I mean, kind of like the way Mueller went to Canadians so they can shred paperwork, uh, you know, and they're Canadians. So what are you going to do, right? They're not Americans and... They're Canadian. <laughs> Listen to what else Kellyanne Conway. She spit fire. Loved it. Excuse me. This president has team, the task force, the vice president, been working day and night for, for over two, three months now on the global pandemic. We can also have the proper authorities go back and see who knew what, because this country was dragged through the Russia collusion, delusion, illusion, nonsense, Mueller investigation, okay. Mueller hearings, so, Mueller report, Mueller testimony for over two years, and we paid for it. We have a right to get that to its logical conclusion, which means look at the other side of the coin here. Kellyanne, moving on to the crisis at hand, that is the coronavirus. The president made this announcement on deregulation yesterday. I want to ask you about it when we come out of it. An executive order instructing federal agencies to use any and all authority to waive, suspend, and eliminate unnecessary regulations that impede economic recovery. And we want to leave it that way. We want to leave it that way. In some cases, we won't be able to, but in other cases, we will. The Wall Street Journal editorial board is applauding this move from the president this morning, uh, but saying that it's difficult to know what fruit it might bear. Obviously, critics of the president are going to say there could be unattended consequences of rolling back hundreds of regulations at this moment in time. Is there a measurable amount that the president believes that this could boost the economy as we are seeing it struggle right now? Yes, Sandra and Ed, the last thing that small business owners and property owners and taxpayers need as they are trying to recover from this global pandemic economically, if not emotionally, are more regulations. This has been the deregulation president. He has cut red tape and empowered our agencies to increase the rulemaking authorities and speed with which they act over the last three plus years. So look at, I'll use FDA as an example. What the FDA has been able to do, what SBA and CMS uh, have been able to do with the hospitals and small businesses. That's so true. They've done so much uh, with deregulation. So why are we going to do it to help the businesses? I mean, this is how you inject uh, money uh, back into the economy, right? Time. It really is the kind of deregulatory action the president is contemplating here. We also have a regulatory bill of rights, a 10-point plan that really gives comfort to and confidence to a lot of these small businesses who say, hey, thanks for my PPP loan. Thanks for my, my check. But I'm so worried that I may face in my state regulatory hurdles, red tape. And I really hope some of these blue state governors will channel their inner Trump and not go back to the overburdening of the overtaxation, overregulation, uh, alert allergy to energy development and uh, small business uh, thriving and surviving that they had as their records before all this hit. We've been collaborating so beautifully with all of these governors yeah. over time that I certainly hope small businesses in every state will be able to thrive. But Kelly. the regulatory reductions will be smart and targeted and really so that people don't face 
additional burdens as they're trying to get through the reopening and recovery. Absolutely. We don't want to let this pass without noting that today uh, we can mark that all 50 states in some way yes. have opened up. Talk about how that important that is in the, for the economy. Uh, and, and also specifically, there are reports now that the president may be inching towards having political rallies again, maybe virtual first online, but then going to route. How quickly can we expect that? Sure. Well, at first on the most important factor here, which is 50 states now have has, they have some kind of reopening plan. We've been working with all those governors. I was on the governor's call with the president, the vice president, first lady two short days ago. Uh, one of the components discussed there was the fact that the cure cannot be worse than a disease. We have this increase in mental health challenges and suicides and drug use uh, because we're creating a pandemic within the pandemic and that uh, all precious lives lost for whatever reason, our precious lives lost. So a piece of that is making sure that the isolation economic desperation is included, that we don't want people to feel terrified to leave their homes and they're facing their June 1st bills now. We're closer to June than June 1st and May 1st now. They're facing these bills. So we're urging these governors to each consider mental health and other maladies as part of the reopening plan. Um, look, the president made very clear that the, pre that the governors have the final say in the latitude to do what they think is best in certain geographic areas. We'll have the governors of Arkansas, a Republican, and Kansas, a Democrat, today here at the White House. And the president also recognized he's keep keeping watch on what other places of worship and professional sports and schools and daycare centers mm -hmm. are doing as well. The CDC has put out guidelines, um, but we also hear from many experts that getting, uh, getting our children back back into an academic and social structure to give them that support. You know, Sandra and Ed, it's very heartbreaking to me to read the statistics and the anecdotes, the increase in child abuse, spousal abuse, drug abuse, mental health challenges in some places where kids with the synagogues and the mosques and the, and the churches closed, the schools closed. Yeah. So many of these kids don't have a safe place and another adult to go yeah. and say, I'm being harmed or I'm worried about the arguments or the, the alcohol use, whatever it is. We have to make sure that when we're, quote, getting back to normal reopening, we put these kids first. We're listening to the scientists and the, economic, and the economists as well. But it's so exciting for this country to feel that people who are qualified to go back to work, they're in low infection rates. They have supply surge, hospital capacity. They haven't been impacted or exposed. Mm -hmm. They don't know anybody who's been impacted or exposed. And they want to get back to work. They want the dignity of work. We are slowly and safely doing that. And I have to say, for as an American, we should all be happy how much collaboration there has been with all these governors, yeah. right, left, and center. Yeah, the governors that don't want President Trump, uh, you know, that's that's evident. So right after this break, we're going to take a trip back in time to March 1st, uh, 2017, and that'll shed a lot of light. Forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. Every decision will be made to benefit American workers and American families. America will start winning again, winning like never before. 
I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. Do not allow anyone to tell you that it cannot be done. No challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit of America. We will not fail. Our country will thrive and prosper again. Your voice, your hopes, and your dreams will define our American destiny. When America is united, America is totally unstoppable. After nearly four years, my family's nightmare is finally over. We couldn't have survived this without the love and support of the millions of patriots around the world. Thank you from the bottom of our heart. Hi, I'm Laura Loomer, and I'm running for Congress in Florida's 21st Congressional District. Wouldn't it be horrible if we lived in a nation where journalists were silenced just because they confronted the political and media elite? You might think that could never happen in America, but it did. And to me. For confronting people like Hillary Clinton on her corruption and Ilhan Omar for her ties to radical Islamic terror groups, I have been banned on pretty much every single social media platform. And if that doesn't sound extreme enough, I'm also banned on Uber and Lyft. I know, I cannot understand that last one either. When this all happened to me, I contacted the media and members of Congress. I asked them for help. I kept calling, I kept emailing, but I never received a reply. And that's when it hit me. I'm a well-known journalist who has the phone numbers of the most powerful people in politics and media, yet I couldn't get any assistance. What on earth would the average American do if the same thing happened to them? I realized then that if I wanted to see change, that I would need to run for office. The American people deserve representation that listens to and acts on their concerns. So here I am, running for Congress in Florida's 21st Congressional District, because the American people deserve a voice and a representative who, like President Trump, will keep the promises they make and speak up loudly and clearly for that silent majority. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. So let's get to the really nitty gritty stuff. Let's travel back in time. Travel back in time to March 1st, where attorney, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions was being asked questions by booby man Al Franken. Take a listen to this when it wants to. President-elect Trump has been so unwilling to acknowledge Russian involvement in the hacking. I, I, I did mean to indicate I respect the FBI and I respect uh, the fact that they, if they give a conclusion, they believe it's accurate. But I, I, I'm not able to comment on the, vice, the president-elect's uh, comments about it. Okay. CNN has just published a story... And I'm telling you this uh, about a news story that's just been published. I'm not expecting you to know <laughs> whether or not it's true or not. But CNN just published a story alleging that the intelligence community provided documents to the president-elect last week that included information that, quote, Russian operatives claimed to have compromising personal and financial information about Mr. Trump. 
These documents also allegedly stated, quote, there was a continuing exchange of information during the campaign between Trump surrogates and intermediaries for the Russian government. Now, again, I'm telling you this is it's coming out, so... Uh, Wait a minute. So Al Franken told him, you heard that, hey, this just came out. So, uh, you know, this is breaking news from CNN. It was actually Washington Post. Um, and he entrapped him on saying what he's going to say now. Just look at how they work. You know, but if it's true, it's obviously extremely serious. And if there is any evidence that anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government in the course of this campaign, what will you do? Senator Franken, I'm not aware of um, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. Uh Listen to what he said. He said this. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have, not have communications with the Russians. And you can see Al Franken smiling super duper hard. Listen to it again. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have, not have communications with the Russians, um, and I'm unable to comment on it. Very well. Very well. So now listen to this when it comes on. But what I'll tell you is, is just as he says that when something wasn't posted, the then Senate, this is Waypo. And guess, I just want you to guess. I 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 want you to guess. Guess who the author of this article is. Because this is kind of, you know, what... Adam Entis. Oh, and what did he write? Then Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama. Wait, take a listen. That uh, basically um, session that uh, basically um, Sessions had in July with the Russian ambassador to the United States on the sidelines of the Republican National Convention. Uh, and that uh, there was a, a second uh, encounter, uh, that one a much more formal one, uh, in Sessions' Senate office uh, that took place in September. I'm honored to appear before you today. I thank you for the opportunity to respond to your questions. During uh, his appearance uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee in January, uh, Al Franken, the senator, uh, asked uh, a question. And if there is any evidence that anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government in the course of this campaign, what will you do? Wait a minute. Listen to what he said. Hold on. Listen to Adam again. Listen to Adam what he said. Okay. On to your questions. During uh, his appearance uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee in January, uh, Al Franken, the senator, uh, asked uh, a question. And if there is any evidence that anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government in the course of this campaign, what will you do? Senator Franken, I'm not aware of um, any of those activities. Stop. What if I told you that Adam Entis, and I'm going to be breaking this on document, actually got communications from White House, Obama White House people, that Jeff Sessions, oh, wait, 
listen to him tell you, and then you'll understand what he was leaked. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians, um, and I'm unable to comment on it. Uh, this, of course, was a, a pretty what we saw as a pretty categorical uh, statement. Uh, he followed up uh, in, in a written response to questions uh, from senators by saying that he uh, did not have any contact with the Russians. Uh, we had then heard from our sources that, in fact, there had been contact. Sources like Barack Hussein Obama's team, or is it him directly? Who was leaking, leaking, leaking from the White House? The uh, Justice Department officials that we spoke to uh, came to Sessions' defense and said that uh, the context of the question uh, in, the, uh, in the Judiciary Committee uh, was uh, whether or not uh, Sessions was having those contacts uh, as a campaign surrogate. The argument made by the Justice Department officials is that uh, Sessions did not uh, deceive uh, the senators with his answer because he was thinking uh, of uh, of his contacts that he had as a senator as opposed to in his dual-hatted role as an advisor to Trump. So Sergei Kislyak is the uh, Russian, longtime Russian ambassador to Washington. His job is to basically mingle schmooze uh, with uh, prominent uh, U.S. officials. And in 2016, uh, Kislyak made a big effort to try to get to know Trump and people in the Trump orbit. Crooked Hillary Clinton, leave this race now! And so there's a flurry of contacts uh, Flynn is having with Kislyak. Uh, this, this begins during the campaign, but really picks up in December. Uh, and Flynn, as you know, um, uh, you know, again, uh, it was asked, uh, you know, uh, how does he characterize these communications he had with Kislyak? And he misrepresented the discussions to Pence, the vice president, and to other uh, officials in the Trump team, uh, which in the end led to his uh, resignation. Mike Flynn is a fine person. And... I asked for his resignation. He respectfully gave it. In this case, um, you know, again, you have a, a, an important member of the Trump team is asked about contacts with the Russians. He uh, says that he doesn't have those contacts. Uh, in this case, what's what's different is uh, Sessions is saying through spokes through uh, officials of the Justice Department that he does not recall uh, what the discussions were with Kislyak. Well, how would he? Because if you remember correctly, his discussions were ki with Kislyak were in passing. There wasn't anything there. There was no there there. And he was forced to recuse himself after this article that, you know, obviously um, Adam and Tooth already knew because unmasking wasn't just for General Flynn. I think Rich Grinnell needs to kind of pull out and see how much uh, unmasking or what sources uh, provided information on Jeff Sessions. So I'm going to be tweeting that out and seeing how we can get that done because um, that's pretty important, you guys. Uh, you know, let's find out because then we can find out who the lying leaker is, but I'm pretty sure we already have that, right? You know where that is, right? Under seal, where the Democrats want it so bad. So, so, so bad. Now, I wanted you guys to 
take a moment and understand the gravity of what we discussed today and how important it is. So uh, former acting attorney general, Matt Whitaker in the first, you know, 35 minutes sat with me. We talked about his book again, remember buy that book, I, I, you know, or listen to it on audible and, you know, I don't, I, I have books. I, those of you that have, that know me know that I have books and I love books. Actually, you know, now that I'm in an apartment, I don't have all my books, <laughs> but I, I love books and there's very few books that I'll get because I'm kind of, it's it, the most books that I have are all reference books, right? Like textbooks, encyclopedias, historical. Well, this book goes in there because it, it mortalizes his time as acting attorney general, as chief of staff, very, very, very well. And his immortalization of his time there also has a lot of great Easter eggs inside. Okay. And one of those was, uh, you know, the thing about Ty Cobb and how that all panned out. But during our conversation, if you notice, no one keeps, everybody keeps skirting the whole, um, part of who was that other FISA on? Who was that other FISA on guys? Who did they also get a FISA warrant that you don't know about? Question to yourself. And what else did they do? Another thing I've been saying for a very long time is Judge Collier had told them, hey, you're over collecting data. Hey, you're doing this. Peter Carlin resigned. John Carlin resigned. I don't know why I keep saying Peter. And um, a couple weeks later, she signs a FISA warrant. And you're like, hold on a second. You know that FISA warrant is based on those fraudulent over collections. You sat there and spanked them. How are you signing this? So that's one. Right? So the judges are a problem. Obviously, as a former federal prosecutor, former acting attorney general of the United States, he's not going to come out and say it, but he did say, and that's really important that, you know, the justice in DC is really difficult to get. Now he worked for Jeff Sessions and had to recuse himself. And why did Jeff Sessions have to recuse himself? Because someone unmasked communications. Now it was all in passing and we know that now, but at the time, how are you going to prove it's in passing and nothing's going to happen? And this, I mean, this was frustrating. It's not like Jeff Sessions meant anything, you know, the names of people who have been unmasked, you know, obviously are with Lindsey Graham. So why is Lindsey Graham not doing anything? You know, Senator Graham wants to know what he wants to know what the fact that they were what spying on you, another reporter, me. And then we get to a little bit higher level outskirts of the uh, Trump administration. Oh, well, no, the campaign. We got George Papadopoulos, all these people. Well, well, hold on a second, dude. It goes all the way to the top because we got stuff on Jeff Sessions too. So why is nobody talking about that as well? Ah, that's pretty interesting. Why is nobody talking about that as well? Because it's not in their benefit, of course. But 
another thing that today was revealed to us, and it went over the head of everybody, is that Pelosi admitted that they know that Comey is under criminal investigation. Currently, his case is being held at a grand jury, and no one is saying a word about it. Obviously, I'll write it up real quick and say, here's the clip. She's talking about James Comey. James Comey is, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's a grand jury deliberation. There's materials at a grand jury going after Comey and Nadler wants to see it. <laughs> Nobody's saying anything. Instead, they're just like, oh, forget about it. What happened happened. Let's just go forward. Pandemic and all. No, man, that's not the way it is. We need our president to get his, you know, they need to rue the day, actually. And they need to start eating some nice crow. Because the bottom line is they took everything away from us. They took the trust we had in our agencies. They took everything away from us. And, you know, that shouldn't be happening. Shouldn't be happening. So on that note, we are going to once again, once again, Listen to my favorite song that I played for you over the year, right? Which is uh, pretty awesome. That um, has some really awesome lyrics. You don't know me, but I know your father.
sorry I left. I hope this message will explain why. I need your help. So the silent running is there, and it's a pandemic, dem panic, pandemic. And I'll leave you guys on that note. I will see you tomorrow, same time, same place, and watch out for that article, because we got to point out how they know Comey is under criminal investigation, and they're demanding, demand, demanding, demented. Yes, they are. But they are demanding the documentation. God bless from everyone here at Red State Talk Radio. 